Hello, everyone. Welcome to a new episode of One Vision. I have a very special guest joining us today, Francesca Rossi, IBM Fellow and IBM Air Ethics Global Leader, President-Elect of the Association for the Advancement of AI, and most recently, a member of Singapore's Advisory Council on the Ethical Use of AI and Data. Welcome to the show, Francesca. So honored to have you with us today. Thanks, Theodora. Thanks for the invitation. So um, before we dive in, can you walk us through a little bit about your AI journey and your role in IBM? Sure. Okay, so my AI journey started uh, since my master thesis, so long, long time ago. Uh, at that time, it was in the 80s, um, there was one um, AI approach that was uh, really prominent where uh, like uh, the whole uh, country of Japan had the fifth generation computer system initiative and the US was responding with other uh, major initiatives and so on. And it was all around a programming language, um, 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 a programming language area, which is what's called logic programming, where people were trying to build a programming language that would resemble, while you were programming, the logical thinking of uh, people. So, um, so that was uh, what was you know in in vogue at the time. So that's was was my master thesis was about. But then, since then, I continued working on AI over many decades uh, in very many different areas of AI. And I was uh, after my PhD, I stayed in academia. So I had uh, um, uh, more than twenty five years in academia, um, and then. Um, after 25 years in academia, then I decided to join IBM. Um, and um, uh, one of the reasons that I decided to join IBM and leave academia was that uh, I was seeing the opportunity to be impactful from uh, the scientific point of view, continue doing that, just like I was doing in academia, but also to have a more concrete kind of impact on the kind of AI that was actually delivered and used by a global company like IBM and then used also by the clients of IBM. So, and I really uh, wanted to, to see if I could contribute at that level as well. Um, and then uh, since I joined IBM, not only I did that, but also I had the opportunity to build the internal um, governance and uh, framework around AI ethics. So all the initiative that IBM takes internally and in partnership with others to make sure that the AI uh, solutions that uh, the company builds and delivers are done in a way that is uh, aligned to some uh, principles that we we defined several years ago already. So we have an internal AI ethics board that I co-chair, and then many other bodies that help this board, you know, implement these activities. So over these recent years, uh, I really spent a lot of time in trying to. Uh, how to op in trying to understand how to operationalize these high-level principles uh, that uh, many companies have around AI ethics into very concrete actions. So education, uh, training, uh, methodologies, um, and uh, uh, enforcement mechanisms. So many, many concrete actions within the company and within our ecosystem of clients and partners to make concrete 
the these uh, frameworks around AI ethics um, in parallel of continuing doing my job as a AI researchers and trying to advance AI capabilities. Wow, um, that is a lot. And for a moment, I paused because I'm trying to figure out to to figure out cloning because that is that is that is a lot in your play and is remarkable and is I'm out of adjectives. So anyway, I, I think one thing that that you said that was really interesting. You've been working on this since the '80s. For a lot of our listeners, I think it is a good reminder. AI has not only been a part of our modern lives, it has been around for quite a while. It's not some new invention that all of a sudden popped up, even though it feels like it, because there's so much talk about using AI and ethics of it, which is the very important thing that you do. Um, there's a lot of excitement, right? As you mentioned in different ecosystems in our daily lives, healthcare, FinTech, retail, and there's a lot of money going into the space as well. But that's the one thing I think we forget when we think about using AI in space like financial services is a little bit different than thinking about AI in retail, buying something, streaming a movie. What would you like to see? The consequence of, of making a wrong choice is far greater when it comes to money, when it comes to our health. And obviously the potentials are also much greater um, when it comes to, for example, financial inclusion, helping more people make better decisions, better choices. So. I'm curious, from your point of view, where do you think AI can be the most impactful, right, from a practical point of view? And what are some of the challenges that you see we face? Yes. So, um, well, as I said, AI ethics uh, has to do with uh, trying to get, I mean, the, the, the basically is uh, try to get the best out of this technology uh, to uh, use it in our everyday lives so that we get uh, social progress that is supported by technological progress in the right direction and in building the future that the future that we we have envisioned um and ai can be used in many different ways and in many different contexts so as you say it can be used to recommend uh, what book uh, to buy or what movie to watch um or it can be used to make a very much more high-stake decisions, uh, such as in the financial domain, in the healthcare domain, and, and so on. So, um, so IBM business model is more in, in this second line of decisions. So we, we, um, we deliver AI solutions to other companies so that their uh, professionals can make better decisions in their everyday job. You know whether it's uh, in the financial domain or in the government or in the healthcare domain and so on. So when so AI ethics has identified a lot of uh, issues around the use of AI in general that have to do with uh, transparency, uh, with explainability, with uh, fairness, the risk of uh, amplifying or uh, replicating discriminations from the data, for example, that is used to train the AI system, um, issues about accountability. Um, and But some of these issues 
are more relevant in, a con in some contexts and less relevant in others. For example, the issue of explainability is especially relevant in this uh, uh, scenario of high-stake decisions, right? So when you recommend, when you have an AI system that recommends to make a certain decision, and they cannot explain why it's uh, making that recommendation, then, uh, then uh, it's very difficult for whoever human being has to make the final decision to, to understand whether it has to follow the AI recommendation or not. So really explainability is very important. If it is about uh, recommending the next, uh, uh, the next um, book to buy or the next movie to watch, then explainability is maybe less of relevant, right? There are other things that maybe are more relevant because uh, usually in that, uh, in that scenario, you collect a lot of personal data. So there are a lot of data issues that are much more relevant in that case. But so you see that even if there are a lot of different issues that raise uh, a certain level of risk, but some of them are more relevant in some domain. So in the financial domain uh, as, and, and in other high stake uh, decision domains, again, it's very important that uh, the AI system uh, can explain why it's making a certain recommendation. So. Um, just to give you an example, you know, if I in the, if I go to a bank and I ask for a loan and the bank rejects my uh, loan application because and it uses an AI decision support system to make that decision, um, I would like the first thing is that I would like to know why that loan application was rejected. And not only, and uh, I would like to get not just any explanation, but an explanation that possibly links the rejection to some variables that are something which I can I can have control and maybe I can change so that in the future, maybe I can reapply and uh, with a better chance of uh, uh, acceptance. So, so explainability is really very important in this uh, high stake domain. And uh, AI can have really, uh, you know, uh, a big impact in this domain to help uh, professionals make better decisions, but also clients and also everybody uh, to be more empowered about our financial, you know, uh, activities. Uh, as you say, um, financial inclusion is also very important uh, and i think that ai can help us achieve that goal um, by uh, but we need to accompany this ai solution with explainability as i said but also with uh, more uh, attention to uh, bias and avoid discrimination uh, because that's also a way to achieve uh, more inclusion in the solutions that you that you build. Uh, one last thing about explainability. Explainability is not only to explain why a certain decision has been made, which is important, but also to allow whoever receives that explanation to learn more about that topic, about that decision about that particular domain of the decision so that uh, I can be more fluent, more familiar with the, uh, how you know things work in that domain, like in the financial domain. So that explainability aspect, I think, is going to be able to help also with increasing 
people's uh, familiarity with concepts and uh, and the mechanisms that maybe be unknown to many of us and may help uh, also building more financial inclusion. That's a very, very good point, especially nowadays, we see a lot of players in our ecosystem, not just incumbent banks, but also fintech startups that are looking to provide more services to a wider group of people. And that makes explainability and how they come to different decisioning even more important. Now, if I were to take a step back and look at and continue that conversation, looking at how we're using technology in in financial services, for example. One of the biggest opportunity I see and I struggle with, and I don't see how we are actually making progress, or perhaps we're not, is to help us plan better as we get older, as our lives change, as things keep changing, right? It's fluid. Every decision we make, every trade-off that we make, we decide to do something or not do something, or even every health event that we experience impact how we do long-term financially. Money and health, they go hand in hand. And as our lives become more complex, we live longer, we work longer, and we earn money differently. We hear a lot of people talking about gig economies, uh, side hustle. And we also see and experience the family dynamics, taking care of kids as well as children at the same time, supporting them at different complexities, at different stages of, of their lives. So to be able to do that, we need to not only understand the link between healthcare and finance, but it's more than just money. And that, that's something I'm really, really intrigued about because I know that that's one of your area of focus. How do we actually help people navigate something so important in their lives? Knowing that humans are not always rational, right? We need to take account of, of their emotions, of everything that that human, that was makes human. How do we help them make decisions? Yeah, um, yeah, that's those are very good points. I mean, um, many of the AI solutions are just uh, focused on one specific, you know, event, one specific like a loan application. Okay, let's make a decision about the loan application or another activity related to that. My financial, you know. Um, uh, and then the AI supports me or supports a professional to make a decision about these other things. So it doesn't have doesn't have a holistic view of all my financial environment, right? Um, and also, uh, it doesn't have a dynamic view of my financial environment. That over time, as you say, with the you know, various events and changes in how things are done and changes in my family and uh, different needs and so on, they need to be dynamically readjusted, right? Uh, and the fact that uh, maybe um, uh, I am part of an environment of a family where each person has his own financial uh, environment, but then they are connected to each other. So it's a network of financial environments with its own activities and so on. So right now, as far as I know, most of the solutions are like focusing on one specific activity by one person and uh, try to make the best decision, uh, taking care of uh, bias and other things about that specific activity. So um, 
So definitely there is the need for more work uh, to understand how to bring this network of specific activities together because that could help make a better collective decision, not just a single decision about one activity. Uh, but I think that AI can help in that because AI, um, and especially you not know, the machine learning uh, approaches to AI, are able to uh, deal with uh, a lot of different kinds of data that can help uh, bridge this gap between the, these different uh, uh, activities that now they appear like separate uh, and are not uh, connected to each other. So I think that by sharing the data about these various activities that can help the AI uh, make a, a better uh, help make a better decision about each one of them. So if the AI um, uh, the same the same loan application uh, can have a different uh, um, a different the AI can have a different way of handling the same loan application if it sees that uh, the loan my loan application is connected to a lot of other different activities and family members and uh, dynamics. Uh, and the trend maybe so in the, the the decision could even be different on a specific uh, activity because of that. Um, another aspect that you uh, and and by the way, this is very similar to other discussion that I had about the, uh, the healthcare domain, where right now the um, the the solutions are organ based. In some sense, there is an organ that has a problem. Let's fix it in the best way. But they're not human based. Of you know, it's, they're not a holistic solution. They say, okay, there are these problems in these two organs, but actually, these two organs are not just generic organs. They belong to the same human being. So I need to look at the whole human being and not just at the two separate organs. So it's a similar similar kind of thing, but. In, even in that case, I mean, uh, I think that AI, you know, can be very helpful uh, in both cases. Um, one other thing that you mentioned that is very important, of course, in that actually in both these domains, healthcare and financial, um, uh, as a financial domain, uh, these are domains that raise a lot of emotions in human beings. You know, healthcare, of course, we care so much that we are healthy, but also the financial domain raises emotions because we feel more secure if uh, we have some uh, financial stability, right? So, um, and that uh, um, brings in, uh, as you said, the fact that uh, we have to um, build machines that can work together with human beings in helping them make better decisions in these domains. And they can take into account that humans are emotionally attached to these two activities, to these two domains, you know, the activities in these two domains. So the fact that machines needs to uh, support humans knowing that humans are not fully rational where emotions come into play um so there are many uh i mean we don't have of course a full knowledge of how our mind our emotions work but we have a lot of cognitive theories that we can rely upon and can tell us how our rationality is is uh, uh, skewed or is limited sometimes or is bounded um and so machines should 
take that into account in order to help humans uh, in, in the best way. So, for example, my recent project is exactly about that. It's not about a specific domain, but it's exactly about building machines that rely on uh, a cognitive theories of how humans make decisions, in particular the thinking fast and slow theory by Daniel Cunningham, to, to help humans possibly alerting them uh, if they recognize that we are in a scenario where emotions can bring humans into a reasoning path that is not the correct one to use in, uh, in that specific uh, scenario. Uh, so definitely the aspects of, uh, you know, um, uh, um, uh, not complete rationality of human beings uh, has to play a role in building machines that can help humans in these very emotional attached uh, domains. On the other hand, humans, when they uh, work with machines, they need to remember that these are machines. They don't need to think that these have, uh, uh, just because they say something is 100% uh, correct, um, uh, first of all, because machine learning approaches are all uh, statistically based, no? so they uh, always have a small percentage of error. And uh, so, and even if their accuracy is very, very high in many cases, um, so humans should be trained to really uh, work with machines and understand that they also have a limited rationality because maybe they don't have enough resources, maybe they don't have the right data uh, to, with which we train them. So both entities, the human being and the machines, have a limited rationality. We have it because of our own limitations, our brain, our story, our evolution, and so on. Machines have it for other reasons, but what, as machines should be aware of the limitations of human beings in order to help us in the best way, we also should be aware that machines are not, I mean, are, are limited also in their rationality. So uh, without knowing each other limitations, then there, there would be, you know, possible, you know, undesired, uh, you know, uh, uh, decisions or collaborations, uh, results that we don't want. That that is a very good thing to remember. They might not always be perfect as much as we hope they are. Um, so you brought up a, a few interesting points when you were talking about transparency, fairness, explainability, and accountability. All of these things that regulators actually around the world are also thinking about, looking at how they can make sure from a regulatory perspective that humans are not being harmed, right? So where do you think this will take us in the next few years? And will we see perhaps different development in different regions, especially when it comes to decisions where trust are important? Yes, yeah, so, um, uh, so a few years ago, uh, it, it was not a long time ago that uh, people were just thinking about high-level principles of AI ethics. Um, then everybody started really to make these principles operational. As I mentioned, within companies, like in my company, to understand what to do concretely inside the company, but also in governments, to understand how to build regulations or uh, guidelines, at least, in how to really operationalize these high-level principles. So that's why 
uh, uh, a lot of different AI stakeholders worked, are still working in this uh, phase of operationalization. Um, standard bodies are creating standards. Uh, there are audit uh, um, mechanisms that are being defined, certification, AI certification mechanisms that are being uh, delivered, and so on. And the government are thinking about uh, thinking and putting in practice also regulation. So, for example, uh, a very big difference in the approach on this regulation is. Uh, um, in, in the process in which this regulation is done, but not really on, in the content, is between Europe and the US. Now, in Europe, there is a European Commission that uh, uh, one year ago, less than one year ago, uh, published a proposal for an AI regulation that when they will be approved by the European Parliament, will be adopted, will have to be adopted by every member state. Okay. So uh, that is going to be the same regulation for all the European Union member states. Um, the, in, uh, in the US, instead, is more of a federal uh, system approach where each state has uh, published or is planning or is thinking about it, its own regulation. So you can find different regulations in different states, like uh, New York State, uh, you know, recently um, had a regulation uh, uh, speci specifically focused on bias for uh, uh, algorithms uh, to avoid, again, uh, discrimination when using these algorithms. Um, uh, so that's why you see a more scattered approach um, uh, of uh, very many different uh, bills and regulations in the United States, and instead a more a more uh, you know global uh, level approach in Europe. But if you look at the content, uh, of course uh, the European one, since it will cover everything and the whole of Europe, you can see all the. Uh, issues that they try to uh, address, you know, in not just one or two, because it will be just one thing for the overall uh, AI. And there you can see that they really um, mentioned this idea of trust. In fact, they call it trustworthy AI, the kind of AI that they want to see delivered and used in Europe, especially when um, they uh, think that there is an application area which they call it's high risk. Okay, they define four levels of risks: unacceptable, high risk, and then lower, and then no risk, and so on. And when it is high risk, and there are things like in use in HR or use in some other domains, even in the financial domain, then uh, they want to make sure that uh, it's not just any AI solution but the AI solution that is trustworthy, which means that uh, fairness, explainability, transparency, robustness, uh, and other properties are being taken care of. And how do they check that these things are being taken care of? Because they, they put a lot of obligations for providers of these solutions and users of these solutions to uh, check that actually these issues have been taken care of. On top of that, they also require another thing um, on top of these properties, but also they require that these solutions are not completely automated, so that there is always human oversight when there is a high risk, which also means high stake the kind of decisions, like the ones that we mentioned in the financial or in the healthcare domain. So in the next few years, I see more and more, I mean, uh, 
governments implementing this uh, in various ways. Of course, uh, different regions of the world they will uh, they will uh, have different details, you know, in how they implement uh, these uh, general uh, uh, principles of AI ethics. But I think that. Already now we are seeing really um, uh, a, a lot of overlap in what uh, the governments uh, care about. Um, so, for example, this idea of defining uh, uh, the risk levels and then making sure that uh, different obligations are attached to each one of the risk level, I think it's an idea that is uh, very explicit in the European AI Act uh, proposal, but also in uh, is very aligned with what the US is uh, is saying about uh, possible future regulation. I feel like the phrase "there's never a dull moment" is fairly applicable at this mm -hmm. point, and and it's good progress in a lot of ways. Before we close, um, Francesca, I, I want to ask you this, and that's something that that's been asked of of me lately, and it's very intriguing when you actually have time to sit back and and think back, knowing what you know now and seeing the progress the industry has made, right, for the many years you've been involved with AI. If you were able to go back in time to when you first started in academia, perhaps when you when you were working on your paper. For your PhD, what would you tell yourself? Um, well, I would uh, I would tell myself to um, uh, well, first of all, to follow to follow my passion. You know what I'm passionate about, and and I think this is the uh, uh, something that I tell you know also many younger people that ask me, you know, what's the uh, your suggestion or what I should do. And so I say, do what you're passionate about, because if you do something that you're not passionate about, you're not going to do it well. So it's not good for you. It's not good for anybody. So uh, to follow uh, my passion, but also to be as open as possible to um, to even do things that uh, you is not are not part of your comfort zone. Uh, so when I when I decided to move from academia to to a company, a corporate environment, of course, it was not part of my comfort zone. I mean, I was very well, you know, familiar with academia, academic environment, with the way you know work uh, is done. You know, you publish paper, you teach students, you grade the students. So all these aspects, I was very very familiar after more than twenty years, and I was not familiar at all with the corporate environment. But um, but I think that it was you know one has to be open to a change in life uh, to take the best of possible changes even if sometimes these changes may not be uh, not the one not the one that I did from academia to to corporate but uh, sometimes changes may happen and you may you maybe you don't like them but take the best out of these changes. Uh, because if you do that, then they will be transformed into opportunities for growth and for learning and for being more impactful. Um, and so to to really uh, embrace 
change and uh, feel okay even if uh, uh, you get, you have to go out of your comfort zone uh, so that is something that i think i learned uh, uh, late i mean in my career that i mean <laughs> i would have uh, i mean I, I don't regret what i did or did not do but i've been saying that uh, uh it should be clear to people when when they start their career that if there is change do not be afraid of change never make decisions because you are afraid of what can happen if you make that decision so yeah i mean maybe it's a jump in the unknown but uh, if you feel like uh, you know uh, uh it can be um can bring new opportunities to learn and growth this is the important thing, you know. So to me, learning and growing, and uh, uh, and also uh, to be as open as possible to multidisciplinary uh, environments and work. You know, work with uh, not just if you are a computer scientist, not just with computer scientists, also with many others: philosophers, psychologists, sociologists, policymakers. Um, Without that, especially now, uh, your, the impact and your and, and also not only the impact will be less, but also your internal and personal growth uh, will not be as uh, as you know fulfilling. I, I I love that a lot, and a lot of that resonates so much. And I would say, at least for many of us, we are glad that you are doing what you're doing and you jumped from academia to IBM. Uh, we appreciate everything we, we do and we admire you. That's an understatement. So, but thank you so much for joining us today at One Vision Podcast. And um, for our listeners, we'll talk to you next week. Thank you, Francesca. Thank you, Tedor.